0: At the heart of Dubai is the Sheikh Zayed Road. It drives through the coastal gulf city, an artery that pumps eight lanes of cars in each direction. It is easier to cross by taxi than it is to attempt on foot.
1: Walkability wouldn't be the first thought many would have been thinking of the city sometimes called the Pearl of the Gulf.
0: But Dubai hardly stands alone in this, Although ancient or medieval city centres can be compact and full of life, the population boom following the Second World War has seen people in the developed world confined to residential districts. Sprawling further from workplaces.
1: Further from amenities.
0: And taking us further away from each other as the automobile came to dominate the thinking around urban space.
1: But the times are changing and they need to change. Let's return to Dubai for a moment.
0: To meet someone who now lives in a very atypical neighbourhood, having fled the typical gated expat community.
2: Big cars, big double garages, detached and semi-detached villas. I didn't meet anyone. Because of the weather and because I'm going from one air-conditioned environment to another air-conditioned environment behind closed doors, my neighbourhood network was pretty limited.
1: This is Matthew Tribe, Managing Director for Planning, Design and Engineering at SNC-Lavalin.
0: He recently made the move to a neighbourhood called Sustainable City Dubai.
2: Yes, Dubai has a kind of very direct titling of their city, so... uh, When you're working in the internet city, you generally know what you're doing. And yes, I do live in a a sustainable city that's called Sustainable City.
0: One of the most noticeable features is a green spine that runs down the centre of the development, providing lush landscapes and a number of biodomes and vertical farms. Check out the links in our show notes for more information.
1: Matt made the decision to move five years ago.
2: To kind of really explore the impact of looking at a different kind of residential model. It's predominantly residential, uh, where in the center of the development is car-free. All the properties have photovoltaics on the roof. They have gray water recycling. And also the car parking areas, which are outside the main core of living, have solar panels covering them, generating obviously energy. What I found though, Cheap very cheap utility bills, which is always a, a fantastic positive byproduct. But the level of community engagement and social interaction because you don't have cars within the immediacy of your garden gate or your front door is incredible.
1: The benefits of living this way are numerous to both society and the individual. And this is an important place to begin. The individual.
0: Matt spends a lot of his time thinking about the future of urban environments and working with other people who do as well. This change in thinking, although it affects cities of millions, begins at the front doors of individuals. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher.
1: And I'm Jane Sophia.
0: For this episode, we've partnered with Atkins to think about master planning exactly how we develop our cities to cope with current and future challenges.
1: Our urban centres will have a critical part to play in our response to the climate emergency. But how they can be leveraged to do this will be fiendishly complex. It will take numerous disciplines across the built environment working in concert.
0: Because this is not a question just of incorporating clever technology or even a utilitarian town plan drawn up by a gifted architect.
1: Nor is this a story about net zero, which involves mitigation and clever bookkeeping.
0: In that a system can be shown to be net zero with a bit of clever accountancy, but our carbon goals need to be far more robust. The greatest response we have to the climate emergency is to make our cities carbon negative. But to do that, we have to make them pleasant places to live, or no one will want to live there. But first, we need to understand what we are working
2: with. This is an interesting subject as we've started to explore within Saudi Arabia as part of their huge transformation program away from an economy based on hydrocarbons into a diverse mixed economy and obviously to respond to a population increase up to probably 15 million from 7 million in the capital in Riyadh. There is a whole question about what makes a world city.
0: For a long time, people have tried to ask, what makes a world city? And produce indices to calculate where it is best to live.
2: So whether Vienna or Toronto or Vancouver or Melbourne always seem to be in the top five, top ten. But those metrics really are possibly considered outdated because ultimately those cities have a very high per capita consumption rate.
1: Beautiful places to live. But ultimately, these places aren't driving a sustainable lifestyle, be it through high consumption, low-density living or limited public transport.
2: And currently, the the measures of sustainability are not met within those livable cities or the best cities to live. And so we are considering now looking at different indices, which actually will measure cities of the future, more appropriately and in line with the challenges that we face around climate change and equality and diversity.
0: These changes are nothing new. The approach to planning urban spaces has followed, particular trends and fashions historically.
2: So suburbia or out of town or new towns were Duraga post the 1950s. Then we looked at urban renewal which was a regeneration play, but that led us down gentrification in many, many places which then displaced kind of existing communities. And now we're looking at very much uh, an integrated approach where there's a lot of kind of uh, acceptance that we have to have a very balanced view around the economic, social, environmental sides of, of each of our designs and our planning projects.
0: But we are still stuck with these legacy cartopia suburbs, where there is an enormous exodus out to work in the morning, and then a return in the evening, with each incidence requiring an enormous outlay of carbon, and thousands of lost hours in traffic.
1: So there's a number of sustainability measures that we need to apply to our new cities and to our current cities.
2: Clearly, the dominance of the uh, private motor car um, and unsustainable transportation modes is something that we need to address. Obviously, the the construction industry contributes to 40 to 45 percent of all greenhouse gas emissions. uh, And obviously, the embedded and operational carbon of the built environment is significant that we need to address.
0: Plus, 70 to 75 percent of the population will live in urban environments in 2050. Compared to about 25 to 30% in 1950.
2: But the other metric I, um, I'm interested in by 2050, 80% of all the buildings already exist. So there's a there's a challenge around adaptation. So should that be at one part of the measure of what is a livable city? So making the existing building stock perform better in terms of use of energy, managing waste and obviously how we create a more social and more livable city around the distribution of land use within easy walking and cycling distances, rather than getting in your car for the short and medium journeys, which are the most polluting.
1: Ultimately, the net zero target is just a line in the sand.
2: That shows a high degree of intent, because obviously the net in front of the zero means we're offsetting. What we really need to do is be positively contributing to the removal of carbon and greenhouse gases. So it goes way beyond the the kind of the net ambitions. And until we get to that environment where, and building solutions where our buildings start to consume and carbon and remove greenhouse gases and contribute to the reduction of urban heat island effect
0: particularly important in Dubai, which regularly tops 40 degrees C, although this is also of growing importance in many other places.
2: Then I believe that the net zero ambition is fantastic and it, and it sets us on a course. But that's not the end game by any means and we have to be very mindful of that. I don't want to see us all patting ourselves on the back in 2040 or 2030 or 2050. Say, well done. Unfortunately, that's not going to be the case
1: cities will not just need to be carbon negative. They'll probably need to be significantly carbon negative.
2: But again, the technology is emerging. You're looking at kind of uh, new concretes, which are reduced in their carbon content significantly. You're seeing uh, the rewilding of cities, which is kind of consuming and taking out greenhouse gas and carbon. There are technologies emerging, and all the top uh, academic institutions are really driving... Uh, the uh, innovation into these kind of the material science, science particularly. And I'm seeing a huge amount of private sector investment in it as well. When economics gets involved, you know change is going to happen.
0: And Matt believes that this needs to be pushed by something that the industry knows perfectly well.
2: I think we can do a lot more as an industry. I think we need to really those advocates for change and driving sustainability within our urban environments. And if we believe as, a, as an industry that compact urban destinations are the most effective way to respond to climate change, then yes, we have to really be more vocal and really drive the agenda around livability, quality of life, sustainability, and creating a balance with nature.
3: So my name's Rupert Green, I work for Atkins in the infrastructure business and I am market lead for net zero energy infrastructure. So that could be anything from an offshore wind farm, uh, helping to design structural foundations for for wind turbines, or it could be designing a substation for for a national grid.
0: Rupert's responsibilities lie primarily in the technical requirements of projects. But like Matt, he's drawn to this bigger picture.
3: Well, when you're looking at at, at cities, I think yeah, you, by nature you you always look at these, these grand plans. Cities are an aggregation of, of of buildings and and you know different use types from you know, where we, we live, where we work, where we play, you know, where we shop. So by by nature you need to look, need to look at these things in the whole, uh, and you need to to have these grand plans that cut across you know, land ownership, cut across use types, uh, and and try and understand. Where the the uh, risks, uh, where, the, where the threats and opportunities lie within that city.
1: Although you're always thinking about how it affects the individual who lives there, when dealing with a massed urban body of people, any intervention needs to be made on a larger scale.
3: If you're trying to create this, this livable, healthy city, you, you, by nature, you're not just talking about single interventions. You're you're looking at a suite of interventions, uh, and and therefore you need to look at them at a, at a high level and then understand how you go from that high level master plan and bring that down to to projects and things that you can implement and, and are tangible.
0: When it comes to new developments on virgin sites, the only limit is modern technology. In a truly modern apartment block, there's really no excuse for energy spent on heating. Passive developments exist today that use waste heat from a number of sources to heat rooms.
1: But the majority of cities exist already. Indeed, it's a commonly cited statistic that by 2050 humanity will have built 80% of the buildings that will ever be built.
0: Just to reiterate, by 2050, 80% of the built environment will be done. Forever. This is because of the need to avoid sacrificing embodied carbon, and there's more on that later.
1: London is a prime example of an old city. It's built upon itself, and interventions need to place themselves into a mess of earlier structures.
3: And the vision for London is is, is perhaps one of the most could be one of the most complicated visions, you know, one of the complicated problems to solve, given London's
0: nature, diverse residential and commercial properties, and the ownership of
3: these looking at just, just looking at the residential building for a start, if you're talking about a, a truly sustainable city in 2050, you need, you're talking about a city that has removed the vast majority of, of fossil fuel use from within that city. So you'd be talking about a city that is heavily heavily reliant on uh, electricity. That would be the, the primary energy source. There would also be likely be decentralized energy for the the provision of heating and hot water for for buildings.
1: And this is all contingent on being able to put the correct infrastructure in place well before 2050, to enable London to shed its dependence on fossil fuels.
0: Decentralisation of energy generation is a key part of this.
3: When you're talking about decentralised energy, London has taken enormous steps to uh, put in place strategies at a local authority level, at a council level, to, to understand where the, where the opportunities are for decentralising uh, existing and, and, and future buildings and, and, and you know, planned buildings. And as part of that that work, the potential sources for waste heat have been identified.
1: This is, for example, redirecting waste heat from supermarket coolers or from industrial sites to heat residential properties.
3: waste heat is generated through to building scale or, or communal scale uh, heat pumps uh, would, would be the, the solution that you'd be looking at nowadays. So the opportunity around decentralized energy is enormous, but also decentralized energy is, is contingent on reducing the demand of the existing building stock and reducing the demand of, of planned and, and future buildings. So There is a finite amount of of energy available on the system in in terms of electricity that can be supplied from the grid to, to fuel heat pumps. There is a finite amount of waste heat available to supply decentralized energy networks.
0: So it's paramount to also reduce energy demand as far as possible. There are supply wins, but these cannot compensate for a wasteful system.
3: So for, for new build, I don't see that as a problem. The, the, the legislation is in place. You know, there's very clear mechanisms that that uh, allow developers to produce buildings that are you know, essentially passive. They yeah. require little, little or no uh, space heating, so the majority of the load would be for for hot water generation. The challenge lies with existing buildings and the ability to improve the insulation and the thermal performance of those buildings sufficiently. And that is a huge, monumental challenge.
1: The standard building stock in London is the Victorian Terrace. These are notoriously difficult to retrofit and insulate.
3: Given their construction and, and the issues with condensation and damp, the, the ability to improve the thermal performance of those buildings can is, is a challenge. There are measures in place that can be, can be put forward. Um, but I say that is the, the, the largest challenge that we are facing.
0: In tackling this, we are again looking at large-scale interventions to have even a chance of an efficient approach. This would ideally mean street by street, which in a Western democracy is difficult.
3: It's a very contentious issue these are people's homes you have no mechanism to demand that people uh, improve the performance of their buildings you you can put all sorts of incentives and you can and you can subsidize the, the, the cost of of improving the building performance but if you were to be given this blank sheet of paper and if you were to say, well, "What, what could we do? You, you, you'd essentially be talking about street-by-street sort of street major refurbishment programs. You'd be talking about wholesale improvement of you know, streets of Victorian terraces. And people have gone so far. People have improved their thermal performance of their building with loft insulation. They've replaced windows. There may be some cavity wall insulation. There's overcladding. All of these you know, are are beneficial in their own way, but is, if you were to approach this maybe on a, a wholesale improvement basis, there is the opportunity to, to derive efficiencies of scale, to, to run this as, as a, as a programme of works.
1: It is not economic to do things house by house, but street by street has the potential to unlock funding.
0: In the city of the future, energy drives most everything.
3: Transportation in the 2050 sustainable city is intrinsically linked to the energy system if we are looking at a scenario where all vehicles will be electric. So you, historically when master planning a city, absolutely, transport planning uh, and, and, and spatial planning uh, you know, go, go hand in hand. You, know, you, you are designing a city and its transport systems as, as a whole.
0: You have electric vehicles, heating and cooling,
3: You have a situation where everything is reliant on the same source of energy. So you know that does introduce issues around capacity, which we are well aware of, especially you know, in, in certain parts of London. Now we are at capacity in terms of the amount of, of um, spare electrical supply that is available. Yeah, we, we we have reached capacity. The the infrastructure is is at its at its limits, and significant investment is required in order to create additional capacity to allow development.
1: And this is without significant electric car ownership at the moment, and even without significant rollout of electric heat pumps.
3: So the penetration of heat pumps in London is minuscule compared with what it needs to be. So we are talking about a fundamental shift in how we view cities and the planning of we well understand the issues around transport planning and then trying to encourage active transport and trying to reduce reliance on private vehicles and and, and encourage the use of of, of, um, public transport uh, and cycling and and walking and and micro mobility. But if we are looking uh, from an energy perspective at at the impact of of transport on cities, it's the charging infrastructure and, and, and what charging infrastructure needs to be put in place. And
0: here, the conversation today is wildly off-base from what it needs to be.
3: The the conversation these days seems to be primarily around how big can your charger be, how fast can you charge a battery, and uh, X number of superchargers here, and, and all of that. That view is somewhat flawed. If we listen to the conversation around uh, electric vehicle charging points at the moment, the conversation generally drifts towards the the need for high capacity charging that allows very rapid charging of of electric vehicles. And I think that's somewhat misguided because actually it's not beneficial to to charge uh, electric vehicle batteries using these rapid chargers all the time.
0: Rapid charging significantly reduces battery lifespan. To a far greater extent than is realized and implied by EV companies.
3: It's actually beneficial to, to slow charge them overnight. And given the improvements to battery technology and the, and the increase in, in range, I think, in, in the same way that we can manage when we go to the, the petrol station to refuel our car now, this isn't a surprise that our car's running out of, out of juice. You know, we can understand if it, how many miles it's got left and and plan accordingly.
1: The sensible car owner can charge overnight. This understanding can also be pushed into other areas. Washing machines, for example. Economy 7 tariffs that people in the UK are used to, where lower fees are charged overnight, can have a broader usage.
0: Peak shaving, where we avoid use of energy at peak times, will be a critical part of a future sustainable community. Added to this, the growth in large batteries in vehicles, and local areas can take advantage of the principles of microgridding.
1: See episode 133, The Legacy of the Lacmagantic Disaster, for more information on the possibilities of microgrids.
0: Energy incentives are one thing, but changes to the physical buildings are another. And Western democracies cannot force people to improve the thermal performance of their homes.
1: Radical options to retrofit streets on a larger scale need to be incentivised. Although this has been more of a problem in the past. With recent surges in energy prices, there is more of a demand pull than ever to improve energy efficiency in private housing.
3: Yeah, we're all in the same boat. We, we all have extortionate energy bills, uh, and, and we all have the opportunity and the ability to do something about that by improving the performance of our homes. But yeah, going back to that master plan, I think what we need is is we need these off-the-shelf solutions. So you know, if someone is living in an area that's zoned as having X opportunities. You we know, we open up our playbook and we say, right, okay, these are the opportunities that that you have. So yeah, you, know, you have that ability to 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 identify what your cost for decarbonisation is.
0: The London Plan is one of the best visions for zoning an old city out there, and we have linked to it in our show notes. The 15-minute city, where all the usual amenities are within a 15-minute active travel journey, is another.
1: Put forward by Anne Hidalgo, former mayor of Paris.
0: But it is easy to get wrapped up in what should be, how we should be building cities. So it's important to look at what's happening
4: right now.
1: And for this, we go back to London.
4: I'm Claire Hebbs and I'm Director of Development at LLDC over at the Olympic Park.
0: LLDC is the London Legacy Development Corporation. It's an organisation created to continue the investment from the 2012 London Olympics. Effectively convert the Olympic Park sites into lasting communities with modern housing.
4: So London Legacy Development Corporation is responsible for Ensuring that the homes are delivered, and so we work with development partners. So, the LLDC put together an, an outline and framework for how those neighbourhoods would be, would be both distributed within the park, but also set development principles for each of those um, those neighbourhoods. And then we work with development partners who then master plan in detail. Um, and then eventually deliver deliver the homes. So we don't deliver them ourselves, our partners do that, Um, but it's very much within the framework that we created.
1: In these long-term projects, there's a continued oversight and input from the developer. What people want to deliver in the first year is very different to what people want to deliver in the 10th year.
4: The park was fundamentally created in order to um, deliver the Olympics but also with a view then to delivering the legacy of the homes, the venues, the workplaces afterwards. So an awful lot of the sort of hard infrastructure was put in place for the games. So there's electricity cables were put in, there's lots of empty ducts actually, so that things can be changed and made to work for later. So the drainage was put in to at least serve the broad locations of the neighbourhoods, even though the roads and the, the kind of last connections into individual buildings obviously isn't there that's part of the master planning process and so the, the some of the overall strategies were set through the olympic games um so that would include things like management of water so flood management as well so there's a, a really large suds scheme suds is sustainable drainage systems which is in part of the park and actually is used. Each winter, you can see the wet areas. Um, So that's been really successful. And similarly, there was an energy network that was put in place um, which was operational for the Olympics. But now each of the developments connects into as well. So the infrastructure was certainly conceived with a view to delivering all of the homes on the park. The detail of that and the end connections tend to be delivered with the projects themselves. Um, So it's a a little bit of both having the infrastructure in place, although it's generally new infrastructure, but then also having to finish it off.
0: The neighbourhoods were set up with the intention of creating a lasting community. So instead of just providing homes, the ethos was to provide places where communities can form.
1: And a key part of that has been making sure the neighbourhoods link in with local communities. This can be as simple as crossing points, or a large intervention such as a bridge over a road
4: they are predominantly residential they tend to have local retail with them so that you can go and pop to the shop and get the groceries you know do do those kinds of things locally have there's a local nursery and again that's about helping those communities have their own have their own identity and actually help them form a little bit around a critical mass
1: and one particularly unusual piece of work has been done with the institute for global prosperity
4: a uh, longitudinal study which has looked at not only whether the the metrics for the area have changed so the social metrics around employability average salaries uh, have increased and um, because what that doesn't do although that shows how an area has changed what it doesn't do is tell you the story of the individuals and so, this is a very long piece of work um, because it's really about tracking individuals and seeing how the impact that we've made um, on individual lives rather than just on an area. And so that's an ongoing piece of work. Um, but hopefully in the end we'll we'll reveal some really interesting results. And hopefully, we'll show the success of the measures that we've put in place to genuinely impact positively the people who live there rather than simply bringing in a lot of people with different types of jobs
1: which is really difficult to measure because often developments have finished before those impacts flow through a project that lasts such a long period of time presents a rare opportunity
0: from a sustainability angle one of the key things that was put in right at the beginning in terms of hard infrastructure was a district energy network
4: and so that was groundbreaking when it went in and it's saved an awful lot of carbon um it's also presented another opportunity for lots of learning and obviously as the grid has decarbonized the energy network performance has has reduced in terms of carbon saving and so we're now doing quite a lot of work on um, how we can decarbonize that network moving forward Um, and so continue to to take the benefits um, from what is an awful lot of infrastructure which has already been installed. So to date, that's connecting to the energy network has been quite a key part of our sustainability story.
0: But can cities really give us that carbon negative sink?
4: Yeah, that's really tricky. I think cities are our best chance of doing it. When you start to look at where, you know, where are the biggest carbon, well, what are the biggest carbon emitters? Um, having people live in reasonably close proximity, so you have the critical mass to actually do something slightly more radical, that has to be the right way of doing it. You can very quickly go down a wormhole of trying to define what zero carbon and what net zero or, or negative carbon is. Um, and the um, the whole question of embodied energy, which um, I think quite honestly, I haven't got my head around um, entirely yet. So I think we have to get there really, don't we? It, it's easy to say, oh, it's all very hard, but I'm not sure we have a choice. And so, yeah, I'm optimistic. I, I am optimistic. The more, over the last three or four years I've seen more and more solutions which actually do offer some form of carbon sequestering and if you you can see the trajectory of um, solutions heading towards that that net zero i am in no illusion about the fact that that is not going to be easy
1: this is an important point embodied carbon embodied energy, everything is too complex to be considered in its own silo.
4: Inevitably, the debate is always more complicated. And the debate about ongoing operations and performance versus embodied carbon and taking down an an existing building. And none of it is clear cut. It's, It's very seldom you get a carbon win Without having to balance something else, and I think that is the that's the hardest part of of this conversation um, is is how do you how do you balance the different impacts of, of any of the solutions we have? And so there's there's the pure skill set. Um, there's also the mindset of people to actually do better. But this balancing argument and what really is the the right answer in each individual case i think is is really tricky and i think really because it's so hard in some cases it just ties things up for a really long time and so solutions get stalled and if we could find an easy way through that or a quicker way through that i think it would help considerably
0: Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Jane Sophia. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young. And our own compact social environment is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Atkins, part of the snc Lavelin Group. And thanks also to the London Legacy Development Corporation. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And don't forget to check out our website and sign up to our newsletter for the latest engineering announcements and developments from around the world.